Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In 1966, David Dixon went missing in a suburb of Los Angeles County when he was just three years old. For days, his loved ones and the entire community searched for the little boy, only to find out he wasn't missing at all. In this episode of California True Crime, The Death of David Dixon, I'll share the details of this tragic historical event. Welcome to California True Crime. I'm Jessica, and I'll be your host for this episode. I first came across this story of a missing child when researching other cases, and initially I had planned to share an old clip from the newspaper on our social media. But wanting to give our listeners and followers as much information as possible, I looked a little deeper into the case, and as I followed the day-to-day coverage by the newspaper, I was drawn into the story of the missing toddler and the way the community rallied to try to find him. As such, I was wholly unprepared for the resolution to this case, but I still felt it was an important story to tell, as it had a huge impact on the community at the time, and like other episodes we've covered, also showed how people can rally together to try to help one another. Before we get started, the information for this case came from various newspapers around California, but the majority of the articles came from the Los Angeles Times, You can find a list of my sources for this episode and for our other episodes on our webpage, californiatruecrime.com. In 1966, three-year-old David Dixon was living with his mother, father, little sister, and their dog at 12221 Youngdale Avenue in a suburb of Los Angeles called Silmar. Silmar is connected to some famous areas of LA and is now a really large suburb. At the time this happens, it was kind of an up-and-coming place, and there was a lot of constructions as new homes and neighborhoods were being built. The home the Dixons lived in had only been built six years before, in 1960. Silmar is also the northernmost neighborhood in the city of Los Angeles. In the 1960s, it had a population of just over 31,000 people, which is very different to the population of over 90,000 that it has now. Around the Dixon home at the time, there would have been a lot of construction and new building 
and also a lot of undeveloped land. The home the Dixons lived in is one you'll see in middle-class neighborhoods around California. It has three bedrooms, two baths. It's on a large lot, about 7,700 square feet, with a long driveway, a big backyard, and a swimming pool. In the 1960s, these homes would have sold for $25,000 to $30,000. On the morning of Monday, January 17, 1966, William Dixon, David Dixon's father, went to his job as plant or general manager of Brandy Hinge Company, which was in Burbank, California. Door to door, it was about 9 to 10 miles away. You also probably know Burbank. It's a city connected very closely to cinematic history, but it also has a place with a history of manufacturing. And in the 1960s, there were factories there for everything. So from cars to deodorant to, in this case, hinges. That Monday, David's grandmother was also visiting from Oxford, Massachusetts. It was a nice January day in Los Angeles. At 10 a.m. that morning, according to the Weather Underground, it was about 60 degrees, so not too cold for a winter month. During the mornings, it was reported that it was common for David to go into the front yard and ride his blue tricycle in the front driveway. The driveway is very long and perfect for riding a bike on. He would do this frequently, and according to his mother, Pat Dixon, quote, David always plays on the driveway every morning with Socks, his dog. He rides his trike up and down, talking to Socks, talking to passing neighbors. Many reports would note that David was very friendly and would talk with anyone. The reports don't specify if David took his dog with him on this Monday morning, but at 10 a.m. he went outside to ride his bike as usual. His mother and grandmother stayed inside to visit, as did his little sister, who was just about to turn two years old just a few days later in 1966. At 10 a.m., Pat Dixon looked out the window of her home to check on David and saw him in the driveway. About 10 to 15 minutes later, Pat Dixon looked out the window to check on her son, and this time she saw his tricycle in the front yard, but did not see David. She began to look for her son, and the longer she looked, the more she began to feel frightened at his absence. According to Pat Dixon, quote, he vanished. I looked everywhere. I went up and down the block. I checked our swimming pool. This story in many ways really reminded me of the details in the case of Stephen Stainer, who went missing from Merced, California. One of the things we learned in that case, and in many other cases of missing children, is that there's often a frustrating commonality that can really stifle investigations and that is a lack of witnesses. And that happens here. Pat Dixon can't find her son. He isn't anywhere around the home. And though she didn't see or hear anything, she knows that he isn't where he belongs. And while adults may leave and older children may run away, a three-year-old shouldn't just vanish. As time went on, she became distraught and called her husband at work. William Dixon rushed home from his job, and when he got there, his wife and David's grandmother both got into the car with him, and they began to drive around the area, just hoping that David had wandered off. There are a lot of things to consider here. This is an area with a lot of homes, I imagine a lot of families, so perhaps David did just see another child that he wanted to play with. They're also very close to Osceola Elementary School. And wandering off for anyone who's ever taken care of a three-year-old is not really that surprising. But the family has that gnawing feeling in the pit of their stomach that something has happened to their child. 
because while they search the area in their car, they make it clear in the newspaper that David hasn't even gone to the end of the block by himself. As much as they hope that he has just walked off or found someone to play with, the idea is really hard to believe. To make matters worse, their home is surrounded by undeveloped hills and canyons. There are foothills all around the area with lots of brush, trees, and even caverns. He could easily be hurt if he had walked in that direction. The family drives around the neighborhood for about 30 minutes, and when they don't find David, they go home and they call the police. Police immediately respond, and right away there are two basic theories. The first, that David wandered off, and the second, that he was possibly kidnapped. Without evidence of what happened to David, the police begin a door-to-door search in the neighborhood. They talk with neighbors, they see if anyone saw anything, they go inside homes and backyards and alleyways and garages. At the Dixon home, police also search the entire house and property, top to bottom. They open closets, they look through drawers and cabinets, they search the outside of the home, they search the front yard, and they search the swimming pool. David Dixon's father, William Dixon, also searches with police. They do seem really focused at this point on the idea that David probably wandered off. And again, the big issue of concern is the surrounding area that includes hills, but also some even more dangerous areas like drainage and ditches. There's some ponds and swamp, uh, swamps nearby and the Van Norman Lakes, which are large reservoirs. There are also water sources in the area with a lot of places he could get into and get hurt. And the weather leading up to this day has been very rainy. So places with water are at high levels, as well as just areas on the side of the road. A ditch or a drain can become even more dangerous when it's been very rainy. And now it's much more like a deep water puddle and a place where a toddler could even fall into and get hurt. At the house, Pat Dixon and her mom stayed near the phones in case someone called with news or someone found David themselves. Eventually, the search for David will include over 500 people. The police will put eight detectives on the case, and a lot of resources are put into finding this little boy. In total, over 30 square miles are searched, in what Inspector Peter F. Hagen described as, quote, the most complete search I've ever observed. Ultimately, this was massive, an all-hands-on-deck kind of search, both because he is in severe danger if he wandered into the hills, or if he had been taken by someone. Information is given to the public, and police ask for their assistance in finding David Dixon. David is three years old, and is described as Caucasian, 38 pounds, and very talkative. He is considered chubby with blonde hair and blue eyes. On the morning he went missing, he was wearing a hooded white sweatshirt over a red and blue striped long sleeve shirt, tan trousers, and blue tennis shoes. The time David went missing is officially about 10.15 a.m. that Monday morning. The people looking for David are a mixture of professionals and volunteers. At least 75 police officers search for David on foot, and seven police vehicles search for him as well. There are also police on horses and by helicopter. And this is all in the very first hours of David going missing. By Monday evening of that same day, Boy Scout troops also join in on the search. Searchers spread out all across the neighborhood of Silmar, as well as the hills surrounding it. Adding to the difficulty of finding David is that none of the neighbors saw anything suspicious on that Monday morning. They're also asked if they saw anything suspicious leading up to the disappearance. There weren't any out-of-place cars, according to them. There weren't even door-to-door salesmen. 
so nothing out of the ordinary comes up. And in fact, none of the neighbors reported seeing David outside of his house at all. So no one saw him wander off. No one saw him with a stranger. And no one saw him that day outside playing with his tricycle. The police also focus on the Dixon family. This makes sense in these kinds of cases. We've gone over the statistics before, but unfortunately, children are most likely to be hurt by a parent or someone they know, and most likely to be hurt at their home. I know just reading the newspaper and a lot of crime articles every week, there are way too many stories of parents hurting their children. Police have to look at the family, as they do in other cases, to at the very least eliminate them as suspects. The Dixons tell the police there weren't any family problems and they feel really strongly that someone has taken him. They tell police that David was known for talking to people just walking by the house. David spoke clearly and knew his name and how old he was, but he didn't know his address. They also don't think he would just keep wandering around. According to his parents, if he had gotten just maybe down the block, he probably would have gotten scared and begun crying. In their minds, if this is what had happened, someone should have seen him. There isn't as much in the newspapers about how the police treated the family, but it does appear they brought them in for questioning, and at one point they also underwent lie detector tests, including the grandmother. This could be because police suspected them of something, perhaps even having some sort of evidence, or it could have just been a formality. That information is never given to the public. As Monday, January 17th ended, the masses' search for David wielded no new information, no evidence, and most importantly, there were no signs of the little boy. It's trite to say, but it's true here, and in far too many cases of missing people. David had, quote, vanished into thin air. The temperature that night was approximately 56 degrees, and even colder in the hills surrounding Silmar, with a wind of 23 miles per hour. If David was outside and exposed to the elements, he wasn't dressed to withstand these temperatures. On Tuesday, January 18, 1966, the police continued the search for David and set up a command post on Roxford Street and San Fernando Road, about six blocks from the Dixon home. San Fernando Road is a major and busy street in the area, and it intersects with Roxford Street, which is only a few blocks from the entrance to the Golden Gate Freeway or Interstate 5. We've talked a lot about the five in other episodes, but anyone getting on this freeway, which was just a short distance from the Dixon home, would be able to travel anywhere in California. Assuming the same two theories as the day before, that David had wandered off or that he was taken, the police worked to cover all their bases. Every place in the neighborhood and surrounding areas that was searched the day before was again searched, and bloodhounds were brought in to help. They also expanded the search after receiving information from workers at several locations around Silmar. The adult world, it would seem, is endlessly treacherous for a three-year-old alone. And while these workers didn't see David or have any evidence about his whereabouts, they knew the places where they worked. And they knew that these could be places he may have gone if he had wandered off. These included the Van Norman Lakes Reservoir, which were a little less than three miles from the Dixon home, a lot of the places suggested by these workers had fences around them or were, you know, a pretty good distance away from the Dixon home, but he's little and they don't know what happened to them, so they have to check. And since there hasn't been any sighting of David, this is a possibility. He could have also fallen in many of the culverts in the area. 
Seven divers from the Police Undersea Recovery Units and the Department of Water Employees focused their attention in that area. Police also send out the description of David as a possible victim of a kidnapping. David's mother and grandmother waited at home listening to the radio and hoping for any information. The radio was mentioned several times and was a key way that information was getting out about this case, not just in the area, but throughout California. More coverage meant more tips. When looking back, some of the tips that came from the area around Silmar were exactly what you'd expect, and some of them were a bit odd. None of the tips ever panned out, but they did have an effect on the family who heard about them as they happened, and who each time got their hopes up that their son was coming home. One of the major tips that came in was from an adult and a group of school-aged children who had been walking in the area of San Fernando Road on the day David went missing. According to this adult, they saw a boy matching David's description crossing the street in that area between 3 and 4 p.m. While the boy crossed the road, a motorist had to stop and let him pass. This tip is given to the public, but not much comes from it. Again, San Fernando Road is 0.4 miles from the Dixon home, and according to Google Maps, would have taken an adult about 8 minutes to walk. It would also mean walking past other neighborhoods and a lot of other houses. But if David had made it down his street and turned right, it would have been a straight shot. All the while tips are coming in, the police and volunteers are still searching, and at noon on that Tuesday, there is finally what seems to be a bit of hope when an officer finds a three-year-old matching David's description, quote, wandering on San Fernando Road, near the area of the Dixon home. He is alone. The police pick him up, and the Dixon family, as you can imagine, hears about this and is hopeful for the first time in 24 hours. But that hope would be short-lived. Because as incomprehensible as it is, police discover this is another three-year-old, not David. They determine his identification and return him to his family. Hello, my name is Mallory Jenner Robinson. Join me in listening to A Hateful Homicide, a true crime podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the trans and gender non-binary communities. Tune in Saturdays at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You can find us on Apple Podcasts by typing in A Hateful Homicide. And you can also find us on Anchor and Spotify by typing in A Hateful Homicide. Follow us on IG at A Hateful Homicide. And you can follow me at MalloryJenna19. Again, tune in on Saturdays at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And I appreciate each and every one of you and your efforts to helping stop trans erasure and supporting all trans lives. Thank you. The search continues, and on top of taking a massive emotional toll on the family, it's also taking one on the community and those volunteers. They're desperately looking for a three-year-old. Many are focused on hiking through the hills, checking in every hole, in every bush and tree they can find, while some are diving into the reservoir, literally looking for a possibly deceased child. And this Tuesday, it will be even colder than the day before, and that night it will dip below 50 degrees. Then at 6 p.m. on that Tuesday, a woman in the area tracked a policeman down to tell him she had found a blue-eyed toddler in the area, alone and matching David's description. When the woman found the boy, she put him in her car 
and she handed him over to the police officer. When she did this, she said, quote, here he is, and drove off. Unfortunately, and again, almost unbelievably, this toddler isn't David, and police contacted their parents and took care of him until they arrived. The newspaper also says that a third toddler is found in the area. There isn't much information given about that encounter, but this child's name was also David. In the end, the police are able to reunite him with his parents. How there are so many toddlers unaccompanied in the area, especially when there's an active investigation into a missing child, really surprised and confused me. The 60s are obviously a different time before stranger danger and Amber Alerts, and of course it could have just been two strange coincidences, but I struggled to understand what was happening here. As all of the searches that Tuesday come to a close, investigators are no closer to knowing what happened to David Dixon. He isn't found in another sweep of the area and the neighbors' homes. He isn't found in the hills surrounding the area, and nothing is found at the reservoir. Without much to go on, police are beginning to believe more and more that he could have been kidnapped. Inspector Peter Hagen, who was an experienced officer with the LAPD since 1941, shared two theories with the newspaper and public. The first was that David may have been a, quote, victim of older boys who sometimes play the hero and adopt a small boy for a short period of time. This theory was an unusual one for me, and while it certainly seems possible David may have joined some children who were walking by the home, I hadn't heard this type of theory before. Certainly there are cases throughout history where young children commit horrible crimes, especially against younger children, but these seem like outliers, not commonalities, and certainly not the kind of crime suggested by Hagen. The second theory is one we'll all be more familiar with, that David was possibly taken by a, quote, child molester. This theory is not only more common, at least when it comes to stranger kidnappings, but it also gives the police avenues for investigation. They put together a list of theoretical suspects living in the area. Unfortunately, this list isn't helpful, and it turns out there aren't any, quote, known predators living in the area at the time. Despite these two theories, and the police giving out David's description as a possible kidnap victim, the police never make a formal statement saying that this is a kidnapping. The Dixon family also never received a ransom note, and in reference to that possibility, William Dixon said, quote, Sure, we have a nice home. I have a good job, but we're not wealthy. We're not the type someone would kidnap a child from. William Dixon offers a $1,000 reward and implores everyone in the area to recheck their garages, under their bushes, anywhere. Dixon's employer also puts up $15,000 reward for information leading to the return of his son. The newspaper runs an article with pictures of David's room, his dog Socks, sitting sadly on the bed, waiting for his best friend to come home. The family tells the newspaper that being at the home while their child is missing is excruciating. They're listening on the radio for updates, and understandably, no one has slept. In the interview, Mrs. Dixon said, quote, I kept expecting someone to call and say they found him. The search continues into Wednesday, January 19th, but it's smaller and there's still no sign of David. The search the two days before was exhaustive, and without any more evidence or signs of where to even look, the police in the community is at a loss. A nationwide all-points bulletin is released, and the story begins to disseminate throughout other areas of California 
through newspapers, and even into other states. Of course, this means more tips, but not necessarily better tips. The Dixon's home phone number is also in the news, so they're receiving phone calls directly to their house. Every time that phone rings, they must hope it's news about their child. And unfortunately, more often than not, it was someone wishing them well or trying to give them a tip. One of the interesting things the family does, and from what I can tell, they do this in the middle of the first two days during the original searches, is consult a hypnotist. This was surprising to me because we've talked about the use of hypnotism in cases, especially with witnesses who are trying to recall events. But no one in the home, or even in this case, was a witness to anything, so this was a little bit unexpected. The police tell newspapers that this action was taken by the family and that they had no part in it. They were very clear on that point. And it turns out that the hypnotist the family talks with is someone they already know. They'd known him for about five years, and his name is Paul Stuver. And in 1966, he was 54 years old. Stuver was a former mechanic, and according to him, he learned the art of mesmerism from a circus wrestler 40 years earlier when he was about 14 years old. Mesmerism is a little different than hypnotism at least in how hypnotism is intended to be used by law enforcement. And while there are lots of criticism about its use, how they plan to use mesmerism here is entirely different. Mesmerism is sometimes referred to as animal magnetism and was named after Franz Mesmer, a doctor from Germany who lived during the 1700s. The quick and easy explanation of mesmerism is that there is a natural force that exists between all living things. And if you could put someone into a trance or a hypnotic state, they might be able to see or detect things that they couldn't normally. Basically, the idea is that if William Dixon, the dad, is in a trance, he might be able to see or, quote, feel David and where he is. To do this, Stuver put William Dixon in a trance on the Tuesday night after David went missing, so just about a day later. He then proceeded to say the phrase, quote, Do you see the boy? over and over. After about 30 minutes, William Dixon said that he had a vision of his son in a, quote, weedless, two feet deep ditch that was exposed to the south and ran into a larger wash. This vision meant that David was in the described area somewhere in the hills. During another vision, William said he saw his son in a crack in the ground at Rinaldi Avenue and Sepulveda Boulevard. This was an intersection about two miles from the home. As you can imagine, this is not something that police would normally do. But after these two visions, the family called the police and they did send a car to the Dixons to drive them around the area while they searched. The police are very careful to say that they sent the car because the family requested it, but that they did not sanction the methods used by the mesmerist. They went to the intersection, as well as to the place William Dixon described in the hills, looking for anything that could come from the vision, but in both cases, they would find nothing. In all, William Dixon would search on through the foothills, he would say about 500 times. While Stuver admits that hypnotism didn't work in this case, he did tell the news he would introduce the family to a psychic. The family also goes with Stuver to the home of a spiritualist, and along with 12 other people participate in a seance in an attempt to feel David's spirit. No one there felt the spirit of the deceased child. The Dixons are clearly desperate to find their child. Despite what William Dixon saw in his visions, the family seemed to firmly believe that David was kidnapped. 
Again, the police never say this is what they believe has absolutely happened, but it's a possibility. In fact, the FBI has offered its help based on the kidnapping theory, and the police don't take them up on it. The police continue to look for David, and on Thursday, January 20th, that search moves to San Bernardino. Police get a tip that two men have reported seeing a child fitting David's description with a woman who was approximately 18 to 20 years old at a bus depot. The first witness was a baggage clerk who handled their bags, and the second witness was a transient man. They say that the woman was anxious, and it seemed as if she was purposely trying to hide the child that was with her. Because they follow every lead, the police look into this tip, and it takes them about a day, but they actually find the woman and the child and determine that it isn't David. At home, the Dixons are receiving more phone calls as the week comes to an end. It sounds as if a lot of the calls they're receiving are from psychics and spiritualists. On that Thursday the 20th, they receive calls all day and up until about 2 a.m. that night. Amongst those calls are still tips that the police have to follow up on. So for instance, they received three separate calls uh, with someone on the other end claiming David could be found at the General Motors plant in Van Nuys. Police send 17 units to search the plant and find nothing. By Friday the 21st, police are running out of places to look and investigatory things to do. They get together and come up with possibilities for what could have happened to David And in fact, they come up with 25 different theories. The majority aren't shared with the public, but one theory is shared, that of a mother complex kidnapping. The chief of detectives, Tad Brown, tells the press that the basis for this kidnapping are, quote, frustrated mothers. These mothers are like little girls tiring of dolls that just throw them away. Basically, the idea is that someone could have kidnapped David to play mother, and when they were bored with him, they would murder him. Again, this is an interesting theory, one there isn't evidence of, and one in which I had trouble finding other examples of. The police are also preparing that if they are able to find David, that he won't be alive. It has been four days since he went missing, and there is no sign of him anywhere. On Saturday, January 22nd, a barber in Redlands at the La Posada Barbershop gave a haircut to a -a three-and-a-half-year-old who resembled David Dixon. The boy was with a small blonde woman in her 20s, and during the haircut, he kept crying and saying he wanted his, quote, daddy. According to the barber, he grew suspicious when the woman seemed incapable of quieting the boy or making him feel better. The barber sat momentarily in the back of his shop to look through newspapers to find a picture of David so that he could compare it to the boy in the shop. Once he found one, he felt there was an undeniable similarity. After the haircut, the woman paid and left a tip and told the little boy they were going to find his dad and go for a ride. The two were last seen going into another store in the area. The barber called the police immediately, but the police were receiving so many tips that they didn't get back to him until a few days later. And by that time, the information was basically meaningless. On Sunday the 23rd, investigators once again interview everyone involved. There are eight detectives working on this case, but there's still no new information. Without that new information, this case also disappears from the newspapers. That is until Friday, February 6, 1966. On this day, three weeks after David Bruce Dixon went missing from his home in Silmar, everything in this case would change. And that's because after countless man hours, searches by police and volunteers, and an all-points bulletin across the United States, it would turn out that David was never missing at all. 
February 6th was a rainy day, and at 7 a.m., William Dixon, David Dixon's father, got out of bed and went to his window to look at the rain in his backyard. What he saw was an unexpected horror. There in his backyard pool, upside down, floating in the deep end was his three-year-old son. He immediately called for help and paramedics were quickly on the scene. They rushed David's body to Holy Cross Hospital, where it was clear that David was deceased. David was fully clothed and wearing the clothes he had on the day he went missing. He was then transferred to the county coroner's office where an autopsy was performed. Now the family, police, and the community had to confront a very confusing end to this missing child's case. How had David ended up in the pool? And where had he been during the three weeks he was missing? William Dixon firmly believed that the only explanation for finding his son's body in the family swimming pool was that sometime during the night before, whoever had kidnapped him had left him there. In fact, according to the Dixon family, they had looked into the swimming pool the night before, not purposely looking for anything, but they had been in the backyard and were sure there was nothing in the pool at that time. They also say that not only did they look in the pool when David first went missing, but it was also somewhere police had checked. And in fact, it is reported in the newspaper that the swimming pool was one of the first places police looked when they searched the home for David. On the other hand, when police are called when the body was found, it's noted that the swimming pool is very dirty and filled with detritus material, including on the bottom where there is significant silt and sand. The pool is also filled with algae, and the coroner says that it was dirty enough to have concealed a body. This is a very confusing set of events, and the more that is noted about the pool, the less clear things become. The family claims that the pool wasn't dirty when David went missing, and that it was again searched by both them and the police. They say a net was used in that search. Neighbors also say that while the pool was dirty when David went missing, it wasn't so dirty that you couldn't see the bottom and the police themselves assure the press that they did in fact search the pool. The coroner is also initially unsure how long he believes David has been in the pool, saying it appears maybe just a couple of days. He performs the autopsy, but he also has to perform some experiments regarding the effect of algae on a body so that he can get an accurate picture of what he's looking at. Of particular importance is the effect algae may have had on the body and whether there is algae in David's lungs which would indicate he was breathing when he went into the pool. What he can say is that the body has been exposed to water for some time, but that doesn't necessarily mean the swimming pool. Initially, he has a lot of questions he has to answer. The swimming pool itself is a kidney-shaped pool that is in full view of the Dixon house as well as the neighbor's home. The shallow end is two feet deep, and it's eight feet deep at the very deep end. Next to the pool is a large rock formation that created a waterfall that fed into the pool. Around the backyard was a concrete block fence that was varying heights. According to the autopsy, there was no sign of mutilation or other injury on the body except on David's face where there was a bruise on the forehead and several superficial scrapes on his nose. These scrapes had caused some bleeding. The autopsy determined the most likely cause of death was accidental drowning. Adding to the confusion, there was no water found in David's lungs, something that might be expected in a drowning. To explain this, the coroner laid out the common ways of drowning. The first is what we're used to hearing about, when your lungs fill up with water, and then in an autopsy that water is found inside the lungs. But there's a second, less common way to drown called spasmodic drowning. 
In this case, the victim swallows their tongue, cutting off air and not allowing water to enter the lungs. The coroner further noted that the deterioration of the body was consistent with David having been in the pool the entire three weeks he was missing. After talking with the family and neighbors, police learned that David would often climb the rock structure next to the pool. The coroner believed the cuts on David's nose were consistent with falling off the rock structure, hitting his face on the rocks, and then drowning in the pool. His death was classified a probable accident. This is a lot to come to grips with. That David was, from the first moment he went missing, in the backyard pool. The chief of police would tell the public that even though he believed and trusted that the pool had been thoroughly checked, the physical evidence was undeniable. He could only guess that the deterioration in the dirty pool was enough to hide the body, and though it was difficult, it was something everyone had to accept. The pool was drained, and after there was no more water, what was left would give credence to the coroner's findings. In the deep end, there was an 18-inch pile of mud and debris, including newspapers, cardboard, and leaves. All of it was covered in algae. This evidence was not something the family could accept. They did not believe that David had been in that pool, in part because they had searched the pool with a net. On top of this, the Dixons began receiving threatening and disgusting phone calls from the public. The people on the other end of these calls blamed them for killing their son and said terrible things to them. They would eventually have to go into hiding because the abuse was so terrible. The Dixons also demanded a coroner's inquest be held because William Dixon believed that the LAPD were trying to cover up something. In an LA Citizen article, William Dixon was quoted as saying the police are, quote, trying to do a brainwashing job. I'm not in the mood for that. I want some answers. But this case comes to an end when this request is denied. It's difficult to know what to say about this case. The loss of a child isn't something I can put into words. But what the Dixon family endured and had to come to terms with, assuming that they ever did, is even more difficult to describe. In one fell swoop, they discovered what it feels like to be a parent to a missing child, to have to think about and hear about all the possible terrible things their child may be experiencing. And then in an instant, there are parents who lost a child to an accidental death. Reality must have felt completely warped for them, and to be met with hatred and vile phone calls is disgusting. They experienced the best of a community, helping to look for their son, and then the worst of that same community when it turned on them. For us, the end of the episode is confusing, but for this family, it was never ending. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.